Good evening. It's good to see everyone here. Uh, a lot of new faces and a lot of um, a really cool mix of people from the neighborhood and different organizations and uh, I think probably a lot of people that don't know each other. Uh, so I, I really look forward to following up with some of this um, after the talk. Uh, downstairs in the potluck we have plenty of food for everyone, plenty, plenty of barbecue and a lot of people brought some, some really uh, delicious looking stuff. So uh, we look forward to that um, just to kind of logistically tell us what's going on. Uh, Chris uh, made up kind of some discussion questions and they'll be down there on the potluck tables too. So uh, ho hopefully we can use that to guide our discussion following up um, and beginning a kind of practice of conversation together uh, around some of these topics. Um, briefly, because uh, I don't need to introduce Chris too much because he's going to cover this much better than I could, but I can tell you kind of my interaction with uh, Slow Church. Um, I'm the pastor, uh, my name's Chris Breslin, I'm the pastor of Oak Church, which meets here, um, and we're about a six-month-old church plant, um, non-denominational church plant, and uh, we, when we, when we planted here, um, we, we replaced a, a Baptist congregation that had met here for, um, 80-something of 112 years that they existed, and they closed their doors last Easter uh, Sunday. And when we started here, one of our, our focuses was on this neighborhood. Um, I think buildings tell you a lot uh, about how you're supposed to use them, and you can see the sanctuary seats upwards of 200 people, and there's 20 parking spots in, in the back of the church. So this was supposed to be a neighborhood church, and that's what we hope to be. Um, and that's what we're hoping towards. Um, I, I don't use um, I, I don't use Pinterest a lot, but the other day I was on Pinterest. I, I do have an account, and I am a male. Um, and uh, like I was trying to clear notifications, and I saw um, that I had this board for when the church started, and it was a board of books that I was reading or wanted to read to kind of have in my head um, when, when we started meeting as a core group and, and started kind of coming around uh, a philosophy. And the cover of that board was Slow Church. And so like, I, I think this is kind of in me and in our congregation more than I probably even realize a lot of this material. So uh, I'm really thankful uh, for, for Chris, his work, uh, his work with John, his co-author, and, and a lot of the conversations he's starting and that we're a part of. I, I can introduce, um, well, before I introduce Chris, I want to thank um, the, I want to thank Chris for being here, for coming down and, and for putting this together. And um, I want to thank the Thriving Rural Communities Initiative at Duke. And Brad Thee is not here tonight. Uh, he had another commitment. But um, they were really generous in sponsoring this and making this happen. Uh, I want to thank uh, Mike Boone for putting our speaker up for the next couple nights. Um, I want to thank Oak Church and Canoe for um, Canoe is the other is one of the other two congregations that meets here uh, for the ways that you've been hospitable, um, cleaning and preparing uh, the space. And I want to thank all you guys for being here. Uh, so give yourselves a round of applause. How about that? So a brief in introduction for Chris. Um, and then we'll have him without much further ado. Chris and his wife, Jenny, live um, in outside of Indianapolis with their three kids in the Inglewood neighborhood. It's the near east side of Indy. And um, uh, they're part of Inglewood Community Church. I'm sure Chris will talk a little bit more about that community because it seems to really permeate a lot of, of his thoughts. And, and you don't know how much of his thoughts affect the community and how much the community affects his thoughts, and that's probably the way it should be. Um, Chris uh, co-authored a uh, Slow Church book last year. It's an IV, uh, IVP book. He co-authored it with John Pattison, and he's authored several other e-books and pamphlets and other things um, and contributed to things, and he's got a book in the works right now about reading for the common good um, that's due out sometime probably next year, about a year from now. So look for that too. Um, uh, Inglewood Community Church from, from conversations with Chris is, is um, a pretty unique church and, and 
And I'll tell you, when, when I first read Slow Church, uh, the first kind of introduction talks about John out in the West Coast, and it talks about Chris, and it talks about Inglewood, and it talks about the history of Inglewood. And I first read that when we were starting here in Lakewood, and it was like so resonant with how a neighborhood changes and how a church changes and the things that you have to do to respond to that and the focus you have to have um, to be present uh, to your neighbors. And so I really look forward um, in this neighborhood uh, to welcome Chris uh, with his experience from Inglewood and community development and, and all the, the creativity that they've uh, evidence and faithfulness there. So uh, welcome Chris Smith. Is the mic on? Okay, good. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here with you tonight uh, from Indianapolis. Uh, I think what I'd like to do uh, is to talk maybe for about half an hour or so, um, but I would like to allow for some time just for us to to uh, ask some questions, have some Q&A, have some conversation in here before we go downstairs. Uh, so I definitely uh, want to allow for that. So many of us feel the pains of fast life, uh, busyness, exhaustion, superficiality. Uh, some of you probably are familiar with Richard Foster's uh, classic book, Celebration of Discipline. Uh, that book begins with the line, Superficiality is the curse of our age. And of course, he wrote that book in 1978, uh, and here we are uh, almost going on 40 years later, and it's probably uh, even more so, even more of a curse today than it was uh, when he wrote those words. But, uh, I mean, some of the other uh, sorts of pains of fast culture that we feel, uh, hypermobility, uh, moving around, uh, even if we aren't moving around, a lot of the people uh, and our families and friends are uh, moving around uh, to uh, completely different cities. Uh, I think there was a study done uh, not too long ago, I think maybe 2013, uh, that said like between 20 and 25 percent of Americans have moved to a different city uh, within the last five years. I believe it was the numbers. I think it was a um, Pew poll or something like that. Uh, so, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pains that we feel of, of fast culture. And there's a, this is actually the culmination of a, of a long and complex history that I won't, I won't get into very much tonight. Uh, a history that goes back at least as far as the beginnings of the modern age. Uh, so, so a lot of people are tempted when talking about fast culture uh, to, to kind of point fingers at technology and uh, point fingers at the fast food industry, for instance. Uh, and and the, certainly there's, there's ways in which those things have contributed uh, to the speed and pace of culture. Uh, but, but it's a much longer history. Uh, things like uh, individualism, industrialization, these, these have long histories uh, in the Western world, and they have contributed to the sort of fragmentation uh, that has kind of set the stage uh, for where we are right now. Here in the 21st century, uh, we are living within uh, what the sociologist George Ritzer has called the McDonaldization of society. Now Ritzer uh, talks about McDonaldization in terms of kind of four, uh, f the four values of McDonaldization uh, are first of all efficiency. Uh, obviously uh, this is pretty familiar. Always trying to see how efficiently we can get things done. And again Richard's idea of McDonaldization, of course, comes from the fast food industry and the ways in which the, the spirit and the, the processes uh, of the fast food industry has kind of infiltrated society. And so the, the four uh, kind of uh, values of that McDonaldization that Richard names are efficiency, calcul calculability, uh, which basically means reducing everything to numbers, uh, being able to quantify things, uh, metrics, metrics, metrics <laughs> is a good way of uh, talking about what uh, Ritzer refers to as calculability. Predictability, being able to predict the results, um, that you always uh, serve the same burger uh, or that you're not going to get a lot of variation, a very minimal uh, variation in the, the product uh, that you're, you're, the end product that you're coming up with. And kind of the, the fourth one kind of uh, 
weaves itself in through all of these, it's control, being able to control uh, the process. But these, these virtues of McDonaldization uh, that Ritzer saw in society have certainly affected our churches as well. Uh, our churches are not immune to the, the larger McDonaldization of society. Uh, we see this in a lot of different sorts of shortcuts that we're tempted to take uh, in the church. Uh, I just name a few of them. I think we, if we brainstormed here, we could come up with probably a pretty long sort of list of the ways in which uh, we've kind of taken, taken shortcuts to, to make, make church, to make the gospel uh, more efficient, uh, more predictable, to have control over it. Uh, but, uh, but just some of the ones that uh, kind of come to mind initially, uh, the reduction of the gospel. Uh, we see, you saw this a lot in evangelicalism in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, the, the four easy steps uh, of, the, of the gospel, or, or there was a lot of different sort of uh, methods like that. Uh, but again, and, and there's approaches of like that sort of evangelicalism or even evangelism uh, were, were very well-intentioned. Uh, I'm not meaning to, to knock them. They wanted to make the, the gospel easy to communicate. They wanted to bring people into the church. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, reducing the gospel like that uh, often left people with a lot of questions when difficult uh, tragedies uh, happen as they do in life uh, and often would leave people disillusioned about uh, the faith that they had stepped into. Uh, Another sort of shortcut that our churches are tempted with, authoritarian leadership. Uh, this has been kind of in the news a lot over the last year with all the things with, that have gone on with Mark Driscoll. Uh, I think that's kind of maybe the poster child for that, that sort of thing, that we, we tend to rely on, on pastors and leaders that can uh, uh, say, this is the way it's going to be, and that's the end of the story. Uh, uh, I think the, the, the church, I mean, certainly there's a place for leaders uh, in the church and a place for uh, vision, uh, but, but it's ultimately uh, we, we're called to, to be and to discern together as churches, uh, and, uh, and the pastors are uh, part, part of that community, accountable to that community. Uh, the, the church service, uh, the Sunday service uh, often, or Saturday service or whatever, uh, as a consumer product uh, or as entertainment, I mean, again, these are sorts of uh, shortcuts uh, that we take to, to, to speed up the gospel, to make it more efficient, to kind of get to the heart of it, to try to control it. Um, so, so our churches are not, not immune to this sort of fast life. I want to tell a little bit about our story at Englewood Christian Church uh, because uh, we were, uh, for a long time, a poster child for fast church. Uh, but I want to kind of step back a little bit and just kind of tell a little bit of our story kind of even leading up to that era. Just to kind of uh, give you a sense of, of where I'm coming from here and our story and how we've kind of learned to slow down uh, and uh, be more engaged with one another as a church community and be more engaged with, with our neighborhood in which we are located. So Englewood Christian Church began, uh, this year will be our 120th anniversary in 1895, uh, and basically has pretty much been in the same location uh, ever since then. Uh, for the first half of our life, through about the mid-1950s, uh, we were a neighborhood church. Uh, pretty much everybody in the congregation uh, lived in the neighborhood. Uh, and the, the church was very involved in, there was a lot of businesses uh, that members of the congregation had, uh, and... Uh, that were right there in the neighborhood. Um, but then in the mid-1950s, we had a very young pastor come in, 20-something, uh, very energetic, very likable. People really loved him. Uh, but he was also very interested in the first uh, kind of waves of the church growth movement. Uh, and he started to kind of apply some of these things that he was hearing and learning about church growth. And the size of the church just boomed over the course of the late 1950s all the way through the 1960s and probably got up about as big as 3,000 members uh, in the early 1970s, uh, which for that time, uh, before there was even kind of the, the label of megachurch, uh, this was, was a very, very huge church. Uh, but, uh, and people were, uh, in contrast to kind of the, the first half of our history, people were coming from all over the city 
uh, to be to participate in our church's church's activities. Uh, but uh, but things were even though we, we had fairly large numbers, uh, things were not all so well uh, with the church. Uh, people were leaving almost as fast as they were uh, coming in and being baptized. Uh, so I don't even though. We probably got as large as 3,000 members. I don't know that we ever had any more than half that many there on any given Sunday. Uh, and uh, by the mid-1970s, uh, that pastor who had kind of uh, catalyzed this really rapid growth in the size of the church over about 20 years, uh, he left the church. Uh, and about the same time, uh, the neighborhood started to, like a lot of urban neighborhoods, uh, started to uh, decline. Uh, people moving out of the neighborhood, particularly the, the so-called white flight, uh, which, like a lot of urban neighborhoods, actually began probably uh, in, af right after World War II uh, with uh, the GI Bill that would uh, subsidize people to buy new homes but not subsidize uh, people to fix up existing homes, so incentivized uh, people to move out uh, to the suburbs, people that were uh, servicemen and women that were returning from the war. Uh, so, but that really started to pick up speed. Uh, what began right after World War II uh, kind of slowly trickled along for a couple decades, and then in about the mid-1970s, uh, really started to pick up speed. Uh, our neighborhood, the Englewood neighborhood, is just about a 12-block, really tiny uh, little neighborhood, uh, but it's kind of sandwiched in between uh, two major industrial complexes. Uh, the to the north of us, uh, just kind of cat a corner from the corner of our neighborhood, uh, is the former RCA plant uh, where electronics, a lot of RCA, it was one of the main sites uh, for RCA electronics. RCA records were pressed there um, for a while in the 1970s. Uh, employed maybe about three to 4,000 people at its height. Uh, but by the mid-1970s, it was also starting to, to be in decline. Uh, just to the south, of our neighborhood is the P.R. Mallory Company. Now this is not maybe not a name that you recognize, uh, but P.R. Mallory was a metallurgy company and it was where the Duracell battery uh, was developed in the 1960s and that certainly is probably a name that most of you are familiar with. Uh, but, but also it uh, was also starting to be on the decline uh, starting in the mid-1970s. And uh, so kind of the people, uh, the neighborhood being in decline, uh, this pastor that kind of driven this, the church growth over 20 years, uh, he left. And uh, those two factors uh, and some other factors contributed to kind of a rapid decline in the size of the congregation over about the course of a decade, uh, from the mid-70s mid to the mid-80s, all the way down to probably about 100 people uh, in the congregation. And uh, a lot of things happened kind of at that time. Uh, one of them was we were faced with the decision, like a lot of urban churches that kind of uh, faced similar uh, experiences, uh, we were faced with the decision, do we stay in the neighborhood or do we move kind of out to the suburbs where a lot of our members are living? And after some prayer and discernment for a period of time, uh, the leaders of the church thought it was really important that we stay in the neighborhood. And so for the last 30 years or so, our journey has basically been one of uh, trying to discern what it means to be faithful uh, in this neighborhood, since we made a very intentional uh, decision to stay here. Another thing that happened kind of in that time when we were really small, we realized that uh, we didn't know each other very well. Uh, we, once the size of the congregation shrunk really large, or, or shrank, shrunk drastically, um, we started to realize that we had uh, some widows in our congregation that were in really bad housing situations. Uh, either their husbands had died and they were left with way much more house, uh, real estate than they could take care of, and it was literally falling down around them, or they had family that was taking advantage, extended family that was taking advantage of them, or uh, landlords that were taking advantage of them. Uh, so it was kind of in this era that we started to think about how can we take better care, uh, particularly beginning with uh, these widows in our congregation, but also how do we take better care of one another uh, in general. So, uh, 
So we did a lot of typical, kind of the first sort of phase of us uh, trying to understand what it meant to, to be faithful in this neighborhood. We, we, we knew that there was kind of a thing of urban ministry and that a, a lot of urban churches did, and we thought that maybe that was what we were supposed to do. So we started food pantries and clothing pantries and um, furniture pantries, built a big warehouse at the end of our parking lot uh, to, to house particularly the furniture pantry if you're going to give away furniture, you're going to have to have a lot of space to, to store all that. Um, so uh, we did that uh, for about a decade, uh, but we found over doing that for the, about a course of a decade uh, that for us anyway, uh, maybe for others, other people have different experiences with it, but for us, uh, it wasn't helping to build relationships with our neighbors. Uh, there, we were moving a lot of stuff, giving away a lot of stuff, uh, but it wasn't... Uh, bringing people into, into the church. It wasn't bringing people into deeper relationships uh, with the church, uh, even if they weren't necessarily part of the church. Uh, so we eventually wound that down and uh, started to do some community development work. Uh, again, kind of uh, coming out of this experience over several years of uh, getting to know our congregation. And uh, we started uh, just uh, doing housing for uh, some of the widows in our congregation. And some of the early housing sorts of things we did, we, we did the work ourselves, uh, we funded it ourselves, uh, uh, we felt we had a responsibility to take care of those people that God had gathered uh, in our church congregation. Uh, so we did things like, um, in order to uh, fund this, uh, people would take out a second mortgage on their house and we'd be able to buy. Uh, one of the, the things about our neighborhood is that uh, we have uh, one of the highest rates of abandoned housing in the state of Indiana. Uh, our zip code, uh, and in fact have been in the top 10 zip codes in the nation uh, for rate of abandoned housing. Uh, so, so most people see that as a sign of blight. Uh, for us, it was an opportunity uh, to, uh, to provide housing, uh, first of all, for some of our members that were in bad housing situations, but, but eventually over time uh, also for our neighbors as well. Uh, so we got uh, started doing housing, uh, started some other businesses, a bookkeeping business. We had a lady in the congregation uh, that uh, worked for the Federal Home Alone Bank in Indianapolis, which uh, funds a lot of community, community development work. Uh, but she was working really long hours, getting really burnt out. She wanted to be closer to the church. And we said, hey, we could probably find some bookkeeping work for you to do. Um, and uh, started, that was kind of the seeds of a, of a small bookkeeping business that does bookkeeping for a lot of churches and nonprofits, uh, and even a few small for-profit businesses from time to time. Um, We've done some landscaping over the years, uh, which again kind of also started with uh, gifts and skills that we had in the congregation. We had a bunch of uh, mostly guys in high school and college that needed work uh, during the summer season, and it was just kind of a nice fit. Um, the city was looking for uh, groups to take care of some parks and some green spaces and so forth, um, and we started doing that for a while. Uh, so uh, all of these uh, sorts of things, uh, for us were, were things that, that helped us to slow down, help us to be more attentive to one another, to the things that were going on around us. But, but the biggest thing, really, that helped us to slow down uh, was the practice of conversation. Uh, in the mid-1990s, like a lot of evangelical churches, uh, we uh, had a Sunday evening service that was kind of a light version of the Sunday morning service. Uh, and people were losing interest in it, and very few people were attending it anymore. And we were like, we don't really want to give up being together on Sunday nights, but we just can't continue to. This is really dying off. Uh, so what we did was we circled up chairs uh, in one of our multi-purpose rooms that we have in the church building, and we just said we're going to have a conversation together. Uh, and we started with the question. Uh, in retrospect, it was probably not necessarily a great choice because it was a very volatile question. Uh, but it was a question that was very much at the heart of our identity as evangelicals. Uh, but it was the question of what, what is the gospel? Um, and uh, it didn't take us very long to realize that we didn't know how to, how to be in conversation very well. It was very volatile. I mean, people yelling, yelling at each other, uh, people uh, leaving the church altogether because they couldn't handle the, the sorts of conflict there, uh, people that stayed part of the church but uh, stopped participating in the Sunday night conversation. Uh, and, but, but we were really stubborn, and we continued week after week after week, and uh, continued to, uh, from 
The question, what is the gospel, moved on to questions like, what is scripture, what is the kingdom of God, what is the church, what is the mission of God in the world, how do we read scripture? Uh, really important questions that kind of get to the heart of, of our identity as the people of God in that place. And, uh, and what we found over years of, of having conversations together on Sunday nights is that we realized that the pr- conversation isn't magically going to solve all our problems, isn't magically going to make us all think exactly the same way. But what it did for us was being in conversation and, and learning to listen to one another and learning to understand where people were coming from actually built trust among us, trust that really helped us to work together um, to do all this different kinds of work that we were doing together in our neighborhood. We also, I didn't mention it when I was talking about some of the work that we were doing, but we also have a daycare that kind of started at about the same time in the mid-1990s. Uh, it was kind of the era of welfare to work, uh, at least in Indianapolis anyway. And uh, if single mothers are going to have to go back to work, they're going to need uh, quality childcare. And we're like, hey, we could do that. We have some young moms that are kind of doing some co-op type stuff, taking care of their own kids. Um, maybe we can expand that and uh, start a, a daycare and preschool. And, uh, and so that's grown over the last 20 years or so. And so, so all these different sorts of work that we do, in some ways, has become an opportunity for us to have conversations together about real things, about how we're going to put food on our tables, how we're going to put roofs over our heads, how we're going to take care of our neighbors, how are we going to do this work well, how are we going to to work with other partners, uh, funders and other groups that are doing the same kind of work, uh, either in other parts of our neighborhood or across the city, around the the country or the world. I mean, all of those are, are conversations, and we are really well prepared to enter into that work, enter into, into those conversations, because uh, we had practices of being in conversation with one another. So anyway, that brings us back to, to slow church. Uh, slow church for me, uh, Chris was kind of alluding to this, uh, but uh, my co-author John Pattison actually brought the idea of writing this book uh, to me, and he said, hey, you guys are doing some of the things that I'm thinking about kind of when I start to imagine what slow church might look like. And I was like, yeah, I'd be really interested in working on that. And for me, writing slow church with John uh, was an effort to, to put some language around the experiences that we had over the last uh, 25, 30 years as a congregation. Uh, it's really difficult because it's, it's kind of messy and it's uh, kind of a lot of many different facets. Uh, kind of difficult to, to really talk about that, and uh, having, having the opportunity to write this book was a really good opportunity to try to, to find some language that, that really uh, described well uh, some of the experiences that we had had as a church and some other churches uh, that we, we've been uh, friends and partners with uh, that are kind of moving in the similar direction and to be able to tell, tell their stories. But, but Slow Church... Uh, is rooted, uh, of course, as many of you uh, know, uh, in the, the slow food movement. The, a lot of the language that we borrow and the imagery that we use comes from the slow food movement and the other uh, slow movements that have kind of come up in the last... Uh, slow food started in the mid-1980s, uh, so the last 25 or 30 years. Uh, uh, there's slow parenting, slow cities, uh, even slow reading recently. Uh, that's one of the newer sort of movements kind of within the slow movement. Uh, but John and I set out to ask the question, what might slow church look like, slow church in a way that is in conversation and is learning from uh, some of these other slow movements that have been kind of moving in this direction for a while? And I should just kind of add a little caveat here. We are very intentional about using the language of slow church. Uh, not slow Christianity or slow faith or slow religion, uh, but uh, because we really believe uh, what God is doing in the world uh, is fundamentally, uh, at the heart of what God is doing in the world, is gathering a people. Uh, we see this in the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that would become the ancient Israelite people. Uh, even Jesus, when he began his ministry, gathered a community of disciples around himself. <clears throat> and then at Pentecost the wall of ethnicity was torn down uh, between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were, as Paul says in Romans, uh, grafted onto the tree of Israel. Uh, so, 
So what God is doing in the world is, is fundamentally about gathering a people, about gathering a people that bears witness to, to the reconciling work that God is doing and intends to do uh, in creation. Uh, so we are very much, and again, this kind of cuts against the grain of the, the sort of individualistic fragmentation uh, of Western culture and, and how much we've been ingrained uh, to think and act uh, individualistically uh, in, in the world. Uh, so just the fact that we're talking about church, uh, really putting church at the, the center of this, uh, is in itself a way to slow down. Uh, that, I mean, in fact, that's one of the ways that we've really tried to, to speed up the gospel is to really make it uh, very, very individualized. It's about me and Jesus. Uh, again, that's probably a bit of an over-caricature there, but, uh, but there's definitely ways in which uh, faith has become a lot more individualistic uh, over the last 50, 100 years or whatever. Uh, so at the kind of heart of what we're talking about at Slow Church, uh, we kind of borrow the three cardinal virtues of the slow food movement, uh, which are a preference for food that is good, food that is clean, and food that is fair. Uh, good is fairly self-explanatory. Uh, it tastes good. It's high quality. Uh, uh, clean. Uh, it's produced uh, with attentiveness, to, particularly to the land. Uh, it's not given a lot of uh, chemical uh, fertilizers or herbicides or pesticides. Um, and fair is an economic virtue, uh, that the people who do the work to produce the food are paid at least a fair wage uh, for, for the work that they've done. And so we took these kind of three cardinal virtues of slow food, and we kind of reinterpreted them into uh, language that may be a little bit more familiar to us in the Christian theological tradition. Uh, we talked about them as three kind of words that all start with E. Uh, ethics, ecology, and economy. Just kind of really briefly uh, kind of touch on what we mean by each of those. Uh, so ethics, when we talk about ethics, we talk about uh, focusing on the quality of our life together rather than the sorts of quantities uh, that we're tempted to uh, shape the life of our church and measure the success of our church by. Uh, kind of goes back to, to Ritzer's language of, of calculability, the, the sort of numerical metrics uh, that we uh, tend to, to rely on. But when we say, no, rather, let us, let's, let us focus on the quality of our life together. Let's focus on, on going deeper of uh, bearing deeper faithfulness uh, to, to Christ and uh, growing deeper in our relationships with our brothers and our sisters and our church congregation, uh, but with our neighbors as well. Um, and it's kind of with each of these, we talk about some practices. I'm not going to go into those really deeply. I just do want to mention them. Uh, but two practices that we thought were really uh, essential to cultivating what we call ethics, cultivating this quality of faithfulness, uh, are, first of all, stability. Uh, of, of being, it's a Benedictine uh, term uh, for rootedness. Uh, the Benedictine uh, sisters or monks make a, a vow of stability, of commitment to faithfulness with, with the people uh, of that particular monastery. I think we, we think churches can learn a lot from that. And certainly we're not saying that people must stay put in a particular congregation for the rest of their lives. Uh, but what we are saying is that uh, churches really do need people that are committed for the long haul, a core, at least a core of people uh, that are committed for the long haul uh, in order to uh, be the roots, uh, if you were, uh, as it were, of the, the church uh, community. Uh, so stability. And, and the other uh, kind of practice that we talk about uh, is patience. And particularly we talk about patience in terms of uh, making sure that uh, what we do is consistent with the ends that we're pursuing. I think one of the temptations of the modern age is to, to separate uh, means from ends, uh, the sort of uh, Malcolm X, by any means necessary. Uh, and and we, we think that, that we, there can be great sorts of collateral damage when we're, ha when we're not paying attention to, to how we're doing something so, so patience is about 
Uh, and again, Eugene Peterson uh, talks about, the Jesus, he has a wonderful book called The Jesus Way, uh, asking the question, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the way? Uh, and what does it mean for us as Jesus' followers to, to follow in the way? And one of the things that Peterson says is that we really need to be attentive to, to how we do things, uh, not just what, what we're trying to do. So that's a little bit about what we talk about when we talk about ethics. Ecology, uh, again, kind of not necessarily the science of ecology, uh, but, but like the, the virtue of clean in relation to uh, slow food, uh, we believe that our call to, to be faithful comes in within God's mission of reconciling all things and that we need to be attentive to, to God's reconciliation of all things, um, not just to my own personal salvation or not just to creating a good life together for, for ourselves, uh, kind of in isolation from, from everything that's going on around us. And uh, two virtues that we talk about uh, in relation to ecology are work. Uh, and when we talk about that, uh, again, drawing very much from the, the Benedictine tradition, uh, but it's going to require uh, diligence of us. It's going to require work of us, blood, sweat, tears. And again, this kind of cuts against the grain of a, a, the, the culture of the labor-saving device uh, that has kind of risen over 20th century. Uh, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, to what end are we saving labor uh, and, what, and, and at what cost uh, to, to ourselves, to creation? Uh, so, so it's going to require work of us, uh, this, this new uh, sort of, of faithfulness. Uh, but on the, other, the flip side of that is that it's also, we also need Sabbath. Uh, we need to take a break from the work. Uh, we need to learn to rest. Uh, to, there's all kinds of things. I don't have a lot of time to get into this now, but, but you look at the Sabbath laws, and the Sabbath laws were intended as a way to shape, to shape a people, to give shape to a people. And so the Sabbath was a day when nothing was bought or sold. Um, what would it mean to take, to take a day when we, d we don't buy or sell anything? And, and how does that affect the way that we interact with people if we're not trying to sell people something <laughs> or we're not trying to buy uh, something, but we just see people uh, or we're not looking at people as what, what can we get from them, uh, but just seeing them as, as brothers or sisters, seeing them as uh, creatures made in the image of God. Uh, so that's, that's Sabbath. And then the, the third sort of virtue that we talk about is economy. And uh, we learned a lot from Walter Brueggemann uh, on this. Uh, the fundamental conviction that kind of lies at the heart of what we talk about when we talk about economy is that God provides abundantly for the life and flourishing of creation. This kind of cuts against the grain of... Uh, pretty much any sort of economic system uh, that's rooted in the, the assumption of scarcity, uh, that there's not enough resources to go around and that there must necessarily be competition for scarce means. Uh, we believe that, that God does provide for abund abundantly for creation, but there certainly are situations of real scarcity in the world. Uh, people don't have enough food and die from hunger or die from lack of clean water. Uh, but that's not what God intends for creation, and, and that is a result of, of sin, of greed, of uh, nation-states um, that hoard resources and don't work well together. And it's, it's really complex. I don't necessarily completely understand how all that works, uh, but, but I do, do uh, know that, that real scarcity in the world is not what, what God intends for creation, and that we believe Scripture tells us that God provides abundantly for the life and flourishing of creation. So what might a new sort of economy look like that's rooted not in scarcity but in abundance? Uh, we, we offer, again, we don't develop this uh, in a lot of detail, but we offer two practices that will move us in that direction. Uh, first of all, the practice of gratitude. Uh, if God has provided abundantly uh, for us and for, for all of creation, uh, then our first response should be one of gratitude. I mean, what has God provided for us? I mean, particularly in our church congregation, what has God provided in the people that God has assembled? I mean, what are the gifts and skills uh, that God has provided? And, and again, we can talk about this more if you want any question and answer, but uh, if God is reconciling all things, might not there be room for the gifts and skills of the, the ballet dancer, the entrepreneur, the dentist? I mean, all of those sorts of things. Uh, uh, 
have a place? And how do we, how do we orchestrate all those gifts together? That's an economy of gratitude uh, of, for what God has provided. Um, and also starting to think beyond our congregation. What has God provided in our neighborhood? What are the assets uh, that are uh, in our neighborhood? There's a whole uh, thing called asset-based community development that I could spend a lot of time talking about, but I won't tonight. Uh, but then also kind of be moving beyond gratitude, kind of the next step of a, a new sort of economy uh, would be uh, that of generosity or hospitality, that just as God has provided abundantly for us, we share what God has given, uh, given to us abundantly with, with one another, with our neighbors. Uh, and particularly, we talk about gen- hospitality as perhaps the most intimate form of generosity, uh, that we're not just kind of giving people money and sending them on their way, uh, but, but we're opening our, our homes, opening our church buildings, opening our very lives uh, to share with those that uh, God brings to us. So I'm running a little short on time here, but I do want to mention, so how do we, how do we move in this direction? How do we start to move into a church life that's kind of centered around ethics, ecology, economy? And I think the image that we have, we have a cha- final chapter in the book, that we kind of put forward this image of church as dinner table conversation. Again, this is a very Eucharistic uh, sort of image of, of eating together uh, and, uh, and sharing our lives together and stories together. It's kind of a double-sided image, of course. There's the, the eating together, the sort of economics. Uh, eating, eating together is an economic activity. Uh, it, it raises all, if we have regular practices of eating together, it's going to raise economic questions about where's the food going to come from? Uh, where, where are we going to eat the meal? Uh, who's going to cook the food? Who's going to, to buy it or to grow it? Or um, who's going to clean up afterwards? All these are economic questions, and that we, they're really drawn into uh, a deeper sort of, of life together as we wrestle with these questions and, and find ways to, to answer these questions that fit who we are as a congregation and fit how we understand what God is doing in the world. Uh, but there's also very much the the importance of the practice of conversation. I've kind of talked about this already and the ways in which conversation has been really valuable uh, for us as a congregation in Englewood, uh, but we think it can be really valuable uh, for other churches uh, in other places, uh, that it's in conversation that we discern together what the shape of our life is going to look like, what what the faithfulness to, to the mission of God in our particular neighborhood with the particular neighbors that we have and the particular history uh, that our neighborhood has. Um, I mean, that's all sorted out in conversation, in discernment uh, of, of listening to one another, of listening to our neighbors. Uh, and again, that practices, intentional practices of conversation, like what we do on Sunday night, is a, is a way into this sort of discerning life together, um, of trying to be a community that is always listening and always seeking to, to take the next step of what is, what is God calling us to be and to do together. And that's the way, I believe, that we start to move in these kind of broader directions of ethics, ecology, and economy. It's in conversation with one another. It's in discernment together. So I've talked a lot here, and we still probably have maybe 15 minutes or so, um, just uh, to, to do a little uh, question and answer um, here. Uh, I like to hear kind of what's on your mind, the questions, um, and then I think after that we'll move downstairs then and kind of continue uh, some of these conversations maybe in a little smaller, uh, more informal setting. But, but yeah, what comments, questions do you have? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think it can be either. Um, certainly, there's advantageous, it's advantageous uh, to take some of this uh, into a church plant situation uh, where you're kind of starting from ground zero uh, and really trying to uh, be intentional about the place where you are and about how you are together in the place, uh, practices of conversation and some of the other practices uh, that I named. Uh, but uh, but I, think, I don't think that that means that it isn't helpful for existing churches. Uh, certainly, our story at Englewood uh, is a, a story of how, uh, I mean, we've learned, I mean, it's been very difficult. <laughs> uh, again, I think, I mean, conversation has been really important for us of, of learning to, to be together and to talk together. And it's, it's been able to help us uh, kind of really uh, dramatically change um, our mission, uh, change uh, the sorts of things that we, we do together and how we understand and how we talk about our life together. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would hope that uh, this would be valuable both for church plants and for existing churches. Uh, certainly, obviously, with my experiences at Englewood, I certainly have a passion for uh, helping churches, uh, kind of existing churches, uh, work work through some of these things and to, to learn practices of of conversation and to to develop uh, practices and culture that uh, promote a sort of deeper life together. But no, that's an excellent question. Go ahead. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, some of you, I know there's there's some people in the room here that have connections to Duke Divinity School. Um, some of you will be familiar uh, with Willie James Jennings. Uh, we actually did a conference about I think about exactly a year ago, uh, and he was one of the speakers that we had uh, for a, a conference on Slow Church. It was actually before the book came out, and he was the reason that we did it when we did. Uh, because he was going to be in Indianapolis, and we had an opportunity to have him as a speaker. So we got a number of other speakers together, some of the, the other theologians that have kind of uh, given, uh, given us inspiration in writing the book. Uh, but, but basically, uh, just to put it really briefly, uh, one of, he believes, uh, and he's done a lot more research than uh, I have, and, uh, but, or a lot of people have done, he, he really... Um, understands the kind of history of the early modern era, but basically that the problem of race uh, really largely became what it did uh, because of the problem of displacement of, of people. We, we hear a lot about the sort of displacement of colonial peoples uh, f- from, uh, or of, of, yeah, people in colonial regions that were displaced uh, by the colonialists uh, but, but we also don't think about the displacement of the colonialists leaving the place, <laughs> not valuing the places where they were enough to, to stay put there, of, of seeing the need to kind of uh, conquer and uh, colonize. Uh, but so, so what, do we, what do we do with that? Uh, and I've, I've kind of had some conversations with, with Dr. Jennings over the last few years kind of in relation to that. And, uh, I think one of the things, I mean, certainly the commitment to stability of staying rooted. Uh, neighborhoods change <laughs> over time. Uh, what were once uh, fairly thriving suburban neighborhoods uh, in a lot of cities in the 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s, uh, are now becoming uh, rapidly uh, the, the racial and economic uh, makeup of those neighborhoods are changing. Uh, so. Uh, so staying put, I, mean, I think eventually, even if we are in a fairly up-and-coming neighborhood, if, we, if we're committed to staying put in that place, uh, then we, we will eventually have to uh, work through. But, but one of the things that uh, Jennings really emphasizes, and I really appreciate this, is, is to know the history of our places 
and to try to understand what kind of people, to try to go back as far as we can and try to understand what kind of people were here before, whether it's um, African American or even Native American, um, if you go back far enough. And, and really starting to, uh, to trace that history and to maybe even pursue reconciliation along those lines of, uh, of, ha uh, of what people, if there were churches, for instance, of uh, a particular uh, ethnicity or race that were once in our neighborhood but not anymore, of, of building intentional relationships. Um, but also, one of the things, and this is kind of my own uh, sort of interpretation of Jennings' work, uh, is that one of the things that we should be attentive to is that our churches reflect the racial diversity of our places, uh, whatever, whatever that in, com in combination with the sort of stability of staying rooted. Uh, so in our neighborhood, uh, unfortunately, it's a long story, uh, I won't go into it now, uh, but, but our neighborhood has a strong, a long history of, or has had a long history of racism. It was a hotbed of the KKK in Indiana in the 1920s, 1930s, obviously a very regrettable uh, part of our history. Uh, but even to the point that even today, there's not a lot of uh, long-term uh, African-American homeowners. Uh, there's not a lot of African-American-owned businesses in our neighborhood, even though we're a fairly typical sort of urban neighborhood. It's just part of this kind of long history that Englewood was a neighborhood that uh, uh, people of color would uh, avoid uh, for, for many, many decades, uh, and we, we regret that. But, but today, uh, we've seen, in, over the last 10 or 15 years, we've seen an influx of Spanish-speaking neighbors. And, uh, and so, uh, one of the things, we didn't really intentionally do this, but it just kind of happened. Uh, we had a Spanish-speaking congregation that was meeting at our church, uh, and eventually, they had some shifts in leadership, and we uh, decided to merge together uh, and become one church, um, and uh, trying to work through all the challenges of, of language and culture. And uh, again, I mean, those are more conversations to, to be had. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that definitely deep value for that. I think that, uh, yeah, and there's, along with that, uh, I'm actually hoping to do some talks uh, over uh, later this year well, with my friend Brandon Renter, who's an African-American pastor uh, here in North Carolina, Boone, uh, North Carolina area, um, but on slow church and justice. And uh, how do we, because slow church, I should be, this is one thing I didn't say, doesn't necessarily mean that we always move as slowly as possible, uh, but it means that, uh, that we're attentive to what's going on around us and, uh, and that we're not just particularly in relation to justice and uh, those sorts of issues, that there is a sense of urgency, uh, but, but that we are formed as a people in a way that we're not just reacting, that we're actually acting out of a deep sort of conviction and identity that is prepared over a period of time to enter into uh, the sorts of struggles uh, that, um, and how do, we, how do we become that sort of people um, that really can enter into, uh, to, the struggles of our neighbors to, to be compassionate people. Compassion from the Latin roots meaning suffering with. Um, and again, that's something that's not very popular in our sort of consumer culture that tries to avoid work and avoid suffering and avoid pain. Uh, but uh, but how, do we, how do we learn to, to enter, uh, to be prepared to enter into urgent situations in ways that reflect our identity as the people of God, as our identity as people that are being formed into the image of Christ. Uh, so, so that's a long answer to a very, very good question um, that is still kind of <laughs> taking shape in my mind and in conversations with uh, some other folks. We can maybe have a couple more questions. Go ahead. Thank you. 
<laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of different facets to that question. Um, I mean, I mean, there's the question one of the kind of spaces in which churches meet, um, and uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to a business park or a movie theater type church. I mean, I think uh, it, as long as the church is not just coming in and going out and totally dispersing, but uh, I think that there are ways, even if you're renting space in a school or a theater or wherever, that you can be engaged with the neighborhoods and, and perhaps even meeting uh, in a school or in, a, in, a, in an existing structure that you don't own uh, might actually be a really good way into relationships with, with schools or businesses. Or, um, so, uh, so there's that facet of it. Um, but, but, I mean, there's also just kind of the larger facet of uh, what does this look like in a suburban culture uh, that has many structures uh, that really do inhibit uh, deeper uh, relationship uh, among neighbors uh, of, of neighborhoods that uh, don't have porches or don't have sidewalks <laughs> uh, that are really uh, designed for automobility. Uh, my friend uh, Brandon Rhodes uh, has just finished his D-Min uh, on the effects of automobility on Amer North American Christianity. Um, and we, we talk a little bit in the book about uh, some of his work. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think on one hand, we believe that God is reconciling all creation, uh, that we do believe that God is gathering people in suburban places. But I think, my, this is my own take on it, is that there are some structural challenges <laughs> in the, the suburban environment that is going to make uh, this deep, slow sort of faithfulness a lot more challenging. Um, the challenge of kind of getting to know, getting to know your neighbors uh, may be a little bit more difficult. Um, uh, the challenge of, of actually living close uh, to the people in your congregation and sharing life together uh, on, a, on a daily basis or almost daily basis uh, can, be, can be a challenge uh, when you're uh, in a largely uh, automobile uh, culture. So, um, so those are a few thoughts. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of challenges. One of the things that, one of the questions that we get a lot, which is related to the questions that you ask, is uh, what does slow church mean for big churches, uh, particularly big, usually the, the context of that is sub, big suburban churches. Uh, but uh, one of the things that we, we really talk about is really trying to, for large churches to be attentive to uh, where their members are located and really try intentional ways to uh, connect people that maybe live in the same subdivision or part of a subdivision and really challenge them, give them a vision of sharing life together uh, kind of as, a, as a, almost a church within a church, a small church within a larger church. Um, I think uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, Randy Frazee's book, The Connecting Church. That's one really large uh, sort of church that's done, started to move. Um, the story that he tells uh, is of a, church, a large church that kind of started to catch a vision of being more engaged around proximity and engaged with, with neighborhoods uh, as kind of smaller groups within this really large church. So, so it is possible, but, but yeah, there are probably some significant challenges. Another question or two over here. Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things for us is that, again, kind of, I mean, I mentioned it at the outset, but I didn't really talk about it, uh, is this kind of temptation to kind of authoritarian leadership or hierarchy. Or We've really tried to be as kind of flat, <laughs> uh, non-hierarchical of a church as possible. Um, we still have one paid pastor, and it's still kind of a, a vestige of a kind of a previous era. He does the things that he did, does. If you kind of follow, shattered him around over the course of a week, uh, you'd probably, other than kind of him preaching on Sunday mornings, uh, you would kind of not almost not recognize him as a pastor. Uh, I mean, he does uh, some what would be in the nonprofit world be called development work uh, for our community development corporation, for our daycare, 
Um, he does a lot of just kind of relational work with other churches, um, with with groups in the neighborhood. Um, so, uh, so yeah, well, we do have kind of a paid pastoral position. Uh, the the work that he sort of does uh, isn't necessarily kind of very traditional sorts of pastoral work. And we've been very intentional about the fact that, I mean, things like uh, visiting the sick and um, listening and counseling to a certain extent are, are things that we can all be involved in. Um, that that I mean, I wrote an article for Leadership Journal about six months ago or so about the, the problem of clergy burnout uh, and the ways in which, uh, I mean, some people have talked about clergy burnout, I think really helpfully talked about clergy burnout uh, in terms of kind of a codependent relationship, that the burnout of clergy is also intimately tied to congregations that really don't enter into the work. I mean, there's the, the practice of work, <laughs> of the, the really, uh, the, the, the unsexy <laughs> sorts of things that need to be done in any sort of community. Um, and uh, so really having a congregation that, and having a vision of a congregation uh, that is empowered, engaged uh, in, in all the sorts of, of work of, of sharing life together and caring for one another, I think is really, really valuable. And it also speaks to the fact that it really takes some of that pressure off uh, if you're kind of distributing that work among the congregation that's not necessarily being paid for that work, then you don't really, you have a, a lower sort of target <laughs> that you're kind of needing as far as salaries. Again, now, again, there's kind of space issues. Um, and again, I think there's really important uh, value to imagination of imagining how we, how we utilize the spaces that God has provided for us. I talked a little bit earlier about kind of imagining uh, the gifts and skills and how those could be put into use. Um, but, but imagining the sorts of spaces that we have. And we, we at Englewood are really fortunate that we have a huge building uh, that was kind of a relic of when we were a much larger church. And so that has given us opportunity to, uh, we've had um, offices for some other ministries and nonprofits that have rented space in the building. Our daycare, uh, again, has kind of grown and uses, utilizes a lot of the space in the building. Um, of course, some of you that uh, are familiar with uh, architecture or planning or whatever know that churches are some of the most underutilized uh, spaces uh, and finding creative ways to, to utilize the church building throughout the week, whether it's renting it to, to groups that want to have meetings or some uh, groups that want to have some office space. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's all kinds of different possibilities, but, but getting to think, think creatively about that. And again, it kind of pushes us pushes our imagination of what a church is or what a church should be. <laughs> um, like, oh, we couldn't uh, have an arts group meet in our sanctuary <laughs> or whatever. Uh, I mean, some churches are opposed to that. And, and it really kind of uh, takes, some, takes some imagination, takes some, uh, takes some rethinking. So, but, but, but I think any, any sort of, anything is possible. Uh, it's just at what cost and how do we, how do we, uh, make it work. So, great. I think this is a good point to stop. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you guys again for, for being here. Um, give, give Chris a round of applause. And like I mentioned earlier, we're, we're, we have plenty of food down there, whether you brought something or didn't or planned on staying or didn't, please um, plan on staying. Um, and, and unlike... Uh, you know, a cafeteria or something where the goal is to get your food and sit as far away from someone as possible. Try to sit near someone, especially, maybe even especially someone you don't know. Um, and we do have those prompts for some questions uh, to, to generate some good conversation. I'm going to invite my friend, um, the Reverend Mike Boone, up to bless our food. Um, that I could have asked several ordained clergy in this room to do it, but I asked Mike. Uh, so I'm an Anglican, so we're going to pray like Anglicans pray, if that's all right, because uh, this probably doesn't happen often at Oak Church. We'll just try it. Uh, so the Lord be with you. All right. Uh, Lord, we just give you thanks uh, for the sweet gift of pork, um, for an opportunity to be together in fellowship and hospitality, to share the bounty 
uh, of our homes and our tables with one another, uh, to have good conversations about uh, some of the important stuff that Chris has shared with us this evening and has, has written in this great book. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would bless our conversations, that you would tabernacle with us and be present uh, in our interactions this evening around the table together. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for all the gifts that you give us, especially the gift of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, uh, for those hands that prepared this food and for those who will go hungry this evening, that our lives would be lived in a way that would make it possible for them to be fed and for them to know the love and the grace of Jesus in their own lives. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.